Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. So great to be together. Uh, we've already sung together. We've taken the Lord's Supper together. Hopefully you grabbed a cup of joe and con- had some conversation together in the lobby. And now we get to open up God's word together. And so if you are a guest with us, we've been making our way through the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, we are starting the last chapter in this letter from the Apostle Paul to his disciple Timothy, who's been called to lead the church in Ephesus. And so you guys can go ahead and turn there with me if you'd like. And we are going to be covering a pretty hard topic this morning. That's probably one of the hardest challenges that we face as believers in our culture. It is the challenge of being content. Yay! Right? (laughs) Um, We live in an all-consuming, never-content, wanting-more sort of culture, don't we? I mean, discontentment is just that sort of cultural air that you breathe, and it is one of the most powerful shaping influences in our society. And you can see it all over the place, right? Uh, Many different shapes, many different sizes, political parties, right? So they thrive on our discontentment. You get all these candidates that are stirring up voters to covet things that they don't have. And if you vote for me, then I will give it to you. And usually just take it from one group of people and give it to another. Or um, what about companies, right? They prey upon our discontentment and this desire for more. They spend millions, sometimes even billions of dollars on advertising alone to convince us that our life is insignificant without this product or this place or this experience that they're promoting. And if we just had it, then we would be satisfied. You can look at it in all the different slogans. I was jotting on a few of them. Uh, So GE, I'm sure you're probably familiar with that one. We bring good things to life. So you get this good thing and then you will have life. Disney, the happiest place on earth. You come here and then you'll be happy. Anybody know Coca-Cola? I actually didn't know this one, but you open up your can of Coke and it says open happiness, right? So I just open up that can of Coke or for Pastor Paul, Coke Zero, okay? Um, Visa, it's everywhere you want to be. So you do this thing or you go to this place and you swipe your card and then you'll be satisfied. But the reality is we aren't satisfied, are we? I was watching this uh, a video of this girl who got an iPhone, her first iPhone. And it was like three or four minutes straight of her just bawling. She couldn't even get a word out. She was just like so overwhelmed with this iPhone that she'd been holding on to. But Apple knows. In a few months, they'll promote a new iPhone, a better version. And then all of a sudden the girl's like, I don't want that one anymore. I want this one, right? Because then you'll be satisfied. We always want more, more stuff, more technology, more house, more fill in the blank. We are a discontented people. And when discontentment is the driving force in our lives, all sorts of problems result. So spouses, they are not content and they rush headlong into extramarital affairs. Or households pile up loads of debt in order to keep up with the lifestyles of their neighbors. Or... Even biblical truth can be distorted in an effort to make the message easier to sell. Oh, if you just trust in Jesus, then you'll get all these good things, right? Whatever it is, we are a discontented people. And I want to tell you this too, Four Oaks. I am a discontented person. Uh, This has probably been the hardest sermon that I have uh, spent time preparing in a long time. And I think it's because God has been exposing my heart 
uh, just how discontented I so often am. But it's a good thing that we are looking at 1 Timothy today because it's into the spirit of discontentment that the God's word wants to speak to our hearts. Um, if you're not familiar with this series on 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, he's been warning Timothy and the church several times about these false teachers. So chapter one, chapter four, but now in chapter six, he wants to expose their hearts. He wants to kind of pop up the hood on their engine to find out what is fueling them. What is it that they're going after? What is their aim? What is their focus? What is their character? What is their heart? And as he exposes these false teachers, kind of pulls back the curtain to show us who Wizard of Oz really is, he wants to show us that we're that same kind of person. But the good thing is, is that as we are uh, assessing our own hearts and we're seeing our hearts exposed, God never wants to leave us there, right? He also wants to heal our hearts. And so he gives, the Apostle Paul gives us an alternative, he says there's these two worlds, these two ways of living. There's one way that's all about me, but then there's another way that's all about Christ. So let's go ahead and stand up. We're going to read this section of scripture beginning in the end of verse 2 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Listen to God's word. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we just want to come to you this morning. I want to come to you this morning and confess that I so oftentimes am discontent. I'm not satisfied. Uh, I go after things thinking they will satisfy me and then they don't. But I thank you that as you expose our hearts this morning, that you also want to heal our hearts with the balm of the gospel. Would you please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that truly understands that Jesus is better. We pray this in his name. Amen. You guys take your seats. And as you do, today's sermon is entitled The Clash of Two Worlds. We've got these two worlds, these two worldviews sort of clashing against one another. And so the one is the world of false teachers and their followers. And then the other world is the world of true believers. And we're going to kind of examine these two worlds with three broad categories. So, so first, their creed. Second, their character. And then last but not least, their consequences. So got the three C's there to help you out. Creed, character, and consequences. And for those of you guys who are paying close attention, you may have noticed that we skipped the first two verses in chapter 6. Uh, that is about the relationship between masters and slaves. It's not by accident. It's also because we don't think that that topic is unimportant uh, or, or somehow it's irrelevant to us. It very much is. 
In fact, Pastor Paul preached a whole sermon on that topic when we were going through 1 Timothy last summer. You can check it out on June the 7th, by the way. And um, not only that, but Pastor Paul is going to incorporate those two verses with the next section when he returns in a couple of weeks. So if you've got any questions about that topic, please wait two weeks for Pastor Paul to return. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. First, we're going to look at the creeds of these false teachers and true believers. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So the main idea, the main question behind this creed or this way of belief, this question that we're asking is, who is at the center of their lives? And for these false teachers... It says they were puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. In other words, who is at the center? Themselves. That word uh, conceit, it comes from the Greek word to phao. It means to be enveloped with smoke. And so the idea here is just that they just constantly are filling up, filling up, filling up, filling up themselves with themselves. They're inflated with themselves. They have excessive pride in themselves. (laughs) But the, uh, the Apostle Paul, he says, you know, uh, they're puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. So they're, they're, they, they promote lots of self, but in reality, their substance doesn't hold a whole lot of weight. And back at this time, uh, one of the main professions was traveling preachers. So people would travel from place to place and they would offer these little nuggets of wisdom to gain attention for themselves and also to uh, gain resources, to, to get pay. And this type of religious teaching had sort of infiltrated the church. We, we don't need to go into those topics. Um, uh, we've already covered that in the past, but I thought it would be helpful just to kind of give you an idea of an exchange between one of these teachers and a disciple. And so there was this, uh, this Greek philosopher, Epictetus, and he sort of pre- presents this vivid picture of what's going on in this teaching. So just listen here. Uh, this is... This is um, First, the traveling preacher to his disciple says, well, what did you think of me today? Upon my life, sir, I thought you were admirable. Well, what did you think of my best passage? Oh, it was excessively well done. A much larger audience today, I think. Oh, yes, much larger. 500, I should guess. Oh, nonsense. It could have been no less than a thousand. Why, that is more than Dio ever had. I wonder why it was. And the teacher responds, Beauty, sir, can move a stone. In other words, these false teachers, they would take a, uh, something from Scripture or something outside of Scripture, and they would say, oh, let me tell you about this. It's a special nugget that I wanted to throw in there. Oh, I was in my quiet time this morning, and, and God revealed this to me. It's never been revealed before. And if you just want to listen to me, then you will be satisfied. So the creed was, it's all about me. I want to be the center of my life. And it seems that for these false teachers, Christ was just sort of superfluous to them. He was sort of an add-on. He was a, more of a means to an end. I'm going to talk about Jesus, but let me really just use him to get an audience so that I can attach more people to myself rather than to Jesus Christ. See, they were more concerned about adding likes to their podcast than adding people to the kingdom of God. 
They wanted to hear their name rather than the name of Christ being beholded by a growing number of people. Self was at the center. In essence, they were so full of themselves that they had no room for Christ. Now, for those of you guys who listen to speakers online, and and I'm, I'm one of those as well, I want you to be really, pay very close attention. There are many speakers who seek to promote themselves more than Christ. I want you to pay really close attention when you're listening to their teaching. Are they promoting Christ? Is he the end? Or is he a means to an end of promoting themselves? Patrick Fairbairn, he warns us this way. He says, if a heart does not live with a deep spiritual attention to the gospel, it will not be able to speak of the gospel with relish and it will choose other things to talk about. We just see this all the time, don't we? People just pop off and they, they spout off all sorts of knowledge, all sorts of things to stir up people and to draw attention to themselves because it's all about themselves. And before we just kind of move past the false teachers um, and move on to the true believers, I want us to ask a question though of ourselves in this. Who is at the center of your life? When you wake up in the morning, what occupies your thoughts? Who do you want to be on the throne of your life? Who do you want to draw attention to? See, these teachers, they were acquainted with the truth, but they weren't arrested by it. They knew Jesus, but they didn't really know Jesus. And very, very quickly, we can just become sort of one of those people that puts Jesus off to the side rather than who is at the center of our lives. The Apostle Paul says, be very careful that you don't get puffed up with conceit and end up understanding nothing. Now, what's the, what's the other creed? The other creed of those who are true believers is, well, what does it say? It says that they agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. In other words, their banner is not self. Their banner is Christ. They want Jesus to be high and lifted up. They want Jesus to be the center of their lives. They want to say with the apostle Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ is the center of my life. I want Christ to be lifted up. I want him to be the center. I want him to be the one that gains the attention and the applause. W.M. McGregor, he tells the story of his seminary professor, A.B. Bruce. And uh, this seminary professor, he would train a lot of local pastors a lot of the time. And, and oftentimes his, his basic process was just open up the word and talk. Uh, but one particular time, um, there was, a, there was a, I guess, a series of lectures that he was giving to a group of local pastors. And, and uh, every once in a while, he would kind of put down his Bible and he'd pick up this little sheet of paper. And uh, nobody could figure out what it said, but it was something scribbled on it. And then he would put it back down. And then a little bit later on, he would pick up his piece of paper again and he'd put it back down. And he did this throughout the week, and about halfway through, one of the local pastors, he was very curious, like, what is on that paper? And so he, uh, he snuck up there, and he picked up the paper, and it was one simple scratched-out phrase in A.B.'s handwriting that said this, Oh, send out thy light and thy truth. And that pastor realized that was, was most important for A.B. Bruce and for his teaching as well 
was to simply shine forth the light and the truth and the glory of Jesus Christ. See, true believers, they keep their gaze on Christ, not on themselves. That is the invitation that the Apostle Paul gives to us. All right, so that's the creed. Second, the character. Good question to ask is, what do they live for? All right, look back here at the text. It says, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Lost in place. Among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I want to talk just real quickly about uh, the first word that says that they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. That word unhealthy craving, it can mean to be sick with. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying that their soul is sick with cravings. And it's, it's cravings about controversy, but it's not just really about controversy. What are they trying to do in stirring up this controversy and stirring up quarrels and stirring up all these ideas? It is so that they can gain greater attention upon themselves. They want attention. They want applause. They want likes. They want to be the center. But there's another type of craving that's going on as well. Look down at verse 10. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Now, that word for craving is a different one. Uh, it means to, be, to stretch out oneself in order to grab a hold of, to grasp, to reach out as far as you can. If only you can touch it. And you can imagine Frodo trying to grab that ring, right? That is what's going on with these false teachers and their followers. They are seeking to grab hold of riches to satisfy. And saying really these two cravings are, are, are working hand in hand with one another. By stirring up controversy and showing off their insights and drawing attention to themselves, they're not only getting applause, but they're also getting money. And as verse 5 says, it says, uh, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So I'm going to promote this special little token from God's word. And then, why don't you pay me a little bit for it? So they were thirsty for applause. They were hungry for praise. They were greedy for, for gain. And like a tornado, though, their soul just kind of sucked up everything around them. They were never satisfied. They were constantly wanting more. They were desiring more to, to truly satisfy their longings. They had unhealthy cravings, and it led to all sorts of disease. And what does it say? It, says it produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant Frictions. So you can imagine this, right? When you are discontent, you begin to envy people. You want what they have. A better house, a better car, more approval, more notoriety. I mean, you just fill in the blank, whatever it is. And you become envious of them. And then it leads to dissension. You start to get into arguments with people because you're focused on yourself rather than satisfied with Christ. Um, James 4, it says, what is it that's the source of fights and quarrels among you? Is it not the passions at war within your own soul? So it leads to dissension and on. It says it also leads to slander and evil suspicions and constant friction. You can imagine, like, I, I want the attention, and so I'm going to start to slander, to speak poorly of someone else. And the Apostle Paul, he's saying, guys, discontentment, 
It's just going to lead down a really difficult, dark, ugly path. And as he warns in verse 10, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So money, by the way, it's not the evil. It's the love of money that is, um, philargia, it's this brotherly love of money. So in other words, it's kind of like money is just that little pal that you always want to carry around with you. And as long as I have enough money, then I'll be satisfied. See, for them, money offered independence from God, offered opportunity to pursue their own pleasures. And then they held it out to their followers and they said, if you follow us, then you'll be rich. Your problems will be solved. Your, you know, your desires will be met. You'll be happy. But I want you to, I want you to listen here, up here. It's not about the money. It's about what it offers. So I want you to think about this for a second for your own heart and your own life. And what I've been thinking about my own heart, my own life. What is it that you think when you spend money or when you collect money or whatever that you are going to attain, you're going to get? It could be independence and security. It could be power and control. It could be status and approval. It could be vacations, hobbies, travel, sports. It could be possessions and pleasures. In other words, what are you craving after? What are you longing for? What are you thinking that's going to satisfy you other than Christ? Now, if I'm honest, man, the lure of riches, it is so, it just beckons, it kind of knocks at my door so oftentimes. I think if I just had a little bit more, then I would, oh, well, then I'd be finally satisfied. Paul warns it's never going to be enough. Pretty soon that love of money and what it offers, it's going to clamp down on your soul. And there's this Roman proverb that says that wealth is like seawater. So far from quenching thirst, it intensifies it. And the more we get, what? The more we want. What's the alternative? So this group of false believers and their, their, or false teachers and their followers, they are craving for more. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 6, though, he says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. What's the character of these followers of Jesus Christ? Two characteristics, godliness and contentment. Those who have Jesus at the center of their lives, they will be characterized by godliness and contentment. If you remember back from chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, it says that Jesus is the mystery of godliness. If you guys remember that. Um, he says that uh, what, what was run, at one point sort of a mystery, like who is God? What is he like? Jesus reveals him. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm going to show you in perfection godliness. And Paul seems to be saying here, as you are putting Jesus at the center of your lives, then inevitably his godliness is going to start to overflow in you. See, godliness does not come through the pursuit of a process, but through the presence of a person. Uh, for me, man, so oftentimes, I, oh, I just want to be a little more self-controlled. I just want to be a little bit more kind or whatever. And I start to, as Paul Tripp says, he says, you start to nail up fruit on a really yucky tree. And he said, that is not the way to go. Instead, you draw up strength from the vine. You've got to deal with the root, not the fruit. And the Apostle Paul says, it is the presence of Jesus in our lives 
that begins to transform us, to change us, so that we begin to produce good fruit. Now, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to flip it up here. Um, For the longest time, I just had a very legalistic way of looking at how to grow in godliness. I was like, okay, I just got to muster up enough strength to be more godly, to be more loving, to be more forgiving. And then, boom, light bulb popped on with this passage. So listen to the Apostle Paul here. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, for a long time, you couldn't truly see Jesus. But then the veil is removed. Now the, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So as we begin to see Jesus as the spirit enables us to see him, we begin to have freedom. We begin to experience new life, new growth, new character. And then he goes on, he says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, if you want to grow in godliness, look to God. If you want to grow in kindness, look to God who is kind to you. If you want to grow in, in selflessness, look at the one who gave up his life for you. Behold Jesus. And not just out there, but receive him in here. See how good and kind and wonderful and faithful he is to you. And as you begin to behold him, in his glory, the Spirit enables you to become more like him. I was thinking about this with my son, Josiah. So for a long time, man, he just loved superheroes, right? So every day he was a different superhero. Wake up one morning, I'm Batman, right? Uh, next day, I will save the world like Superman, you know? And he would use all these different, he would dress up as the superhero. And you couldn't tell, you couldn't call him Josiah. You had to call him whatever his superhero's name was. Hey, Josiah. He'd just be quiet. Hey, Green Lantern. Oh, yes, let me tell you. You know, so anyway, the, the idea here was that Josiah was so enthralled with his hero that he wanted to become more like him. That is what God is offering to us. He's saying when you begin to see Jesus, when he becomes the center of your life, you can't help but become more like him. Jerry Bridges, um, he puts it this way. Uh, Back a slide. There you go. Beholding the Lord's glory in his word is observing his character, his attributes, and his will in every page of scripture. And as we observe him, as we maintain this relationship with him by beholding him in his word and depending on him in prayer, we are transformed more and more into his likeness. We are enabled by the Holy Spirit to progressively manifest the graces of godly characters. You see what's going on? As we open up God's word, as we spend time in prayer, as we develop a relationship with Christ, we begin to see him, draw near to him, and then inevitably become more like him. We become who or what we behold. If you want to be more godly, look to Jesus. Gaze on his beauty. Look to his love. Look to his faithfulness. And not just see it for out there, but see it for right in here. Like how he is towards you. Now, how this relates to contentment. Uh, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't understand the Greek word. But I've read in the commentary that this is where the Greek word comes from. So uh, it says that this word contentment 
um, was actually used very popularly among the Stoics. But for them, it meant self-sufficiency. And so what they were promoting at that time was that eventually you could attain a perfect condition in your life in which you needed no aid or no support. In other words, you could eventually become self-sufficient. You can see how riches might allure us in that way. Eventually, I'm going to get enough stuff, and finally, I'm going to be sufficient in and of myself. And the Apostle Paul says, no. He kind of flips it on his head, and he said, it doesn't mean self-sufficiency. It means Christ-sufficiency. In other words, as we begin to find our lives more and more enraptured up with him, as we find our hopes and our longings and our dreams and our values and our loves and our satisfaction and our identity in him, we become more and more content with him and what he chooses for us. And we begin even maybe to say, as the Apostle Paul says here, if we have found food and clothing with these, we will be content. You might say, Scott, this sounds really good and all, but, but I'm really struggling with this. All right. How do I truly change? I mean, how can I wean my heart from the agenda of the world and, and fix my heart to the agenda of God? I mean, you can't just say like, well, don't love money anymore. You know, just be content. That's not it. That's not going to help us. In fact, that's the law. That, and it just ultimately makes us feel guilty and feels like we have to do all of this on our own. That is not what God is offering to us. That is not what God is inviting us to. Thomas Chalmers, he wrote an important sermon. It is a deep sermon. It might take you a little while to read it, uh, but I would highly commend it to you. It took me a long time to grab hold of it, but it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Some of you might be familiar with it. But he said that the only way to overcome an unworthy love in your life is to gain a new greater love in your life. In other words, a new affection has to expel an older affection. So the heart always clings. It's always worshiping. It's always grabbing hold of something to satisfy it. And the only effectual way of drawing it away from one object is to present it with another object that's even more beautiful, more wonderful, more valuable, more satisfying. And he said, basically, you can't just tell people that the, the world is vain and worthless because it's very tempting. He said, you've got to set before people another object that's more satisfying. And of course, he said, that object is Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to do something this morning or right after you leave today. I want you to take some time and write down what it is that you are looking for to satisfy you. There's all sorts of things that could be. Uh, money, relationship, job, recognition, being the best student, being the best athlete, fill in the blank, bigger heart, uh, bigger house, bigger car, uh, deeper retirement, whatever it is. I want you to think about it, even maybe in what it causes in terms of fear. Like, what are you anxious if you were to lose it? Or what do you get angry about whenever you lose it? Or when you get it, oh, now I'm finally satisfied. Think about those things. In other words, think about those things that you are grabbing hold of for your identity, for your value, for your significance. And then, along with whatever that thing is or those things are, 
those people are, whatever, fill in the blank. Then write down why you want it so much. Um, Tim Keller, he talks about what he calls surface idols and root idols. So a surface idol might be something like, oh, you know, I, I just want to do well in my workplace. Um, that's, a, that's, that's something, I just work hard. And sometimes I put too much energy and too much time into my work and I begin to neglect my family. But what's underneath the surface there is that I want approval or I want recognition or I want fill in the blank. All right, so I want you to write down one of those things that you're looking to satisfy you. And then I want you to write down why you want it. And then this is the most important thing. I want you to ask for the spirit of God to help you to see how you can get it from Jesus. So when you long for approval, see that Christ is the one who approves of you. When you desire riches, see, see that Christ is the one who offer riches that never runs dry, that never runs out, that are eternally at his right hand. When you want significance, Christ gives you significance. You can say, I'm so valuable because of what he's done for me. That's how I have significance. And now he's given me kingdom work both now and forever to be involved with. When you crave security and value, Christ displays his love for you and he will never let you go. He will always keep you secure. There's a lot of seniors in here uh, this morning. You guys are graduating, right? We're going to honor you in a few minutes. The world offers you so much promise and it might satisfy for a little while, but it will eventually leave you high and dry. That's the promise of all of our idols. They promise life and then they put us to death. For me, it's performance and approval. This week, I was mentioned earlier, like discontentment has just filled my heart because um, I had this particular situation that I was just wanting to meet someone's approval and then I failed. And it just let me down a deep, dark spiral of like, oh, I messed up once again. And God just simply said, Scott, you are not looking to me. You are seeking to find your value and your performance rather than the finished work of Jesus Christ for you. I have given you his righteousness so that when you fail, you can be reminded that he never fails. And when you're seeking the approval of man, that really will never satisfy. I want you to remember, I always approve of you because of my finished work on the cross. So think about that song we just sang, right? In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. In every victory, Jesus is better. More than all comforts, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. I want for you this morning to see that Jesus really is better. That those desires that you have are not bad desires. You're just looking for them in the wrong places. Look for them in Christ. Ask that he would meet your discontented heart with the contentment that's found only in him. I was reading this this morning as I was meditating on Psalm 69, and it says, For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. That's God's invitation to make alive your heart. By the way, 
thought this was really cool. Uh, that word sound words, um, that word sound, it can also be translated healthy words. So as you are meditating upon Jesus and you're spending time in his word and you're seeing him more and more, he restores your soul. He revives your soul with life. He makes you healthy where your soul has been sick with discontentment. So you guys are like, all right, sounds good, Scott. I'm just going to pray and then tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'll be all content. It's great. No, as we know, that is not the case Uh, There are so often times where we get distracted and we have to constantly come back to look at Christ once again. I was hearing this, uh, I read this this, um, sermon by John Flavel and he said, our hearts are like an instrument. And he said, our hearts are constantly getting untuned by the ways of the world. And he said, we have to retune our hearts once again by beholding Jesus in his word and in prayer. So we've got to constantly retune our hearts Meaning it's going to take time. It's going to take, it's going to take practice. It's going to take perseverance. And I love what the apostle Paul said. Uh, He says in Philippians four, he says, I have learned contentment. In other words, it didn't say, oh yeah, just, just, you know, snap of the fingers, poof. I look at Jesus and now everything's good. It takes time. I've learned it. And he says, he goes on. He says, I've learned it. I've been brought low. And I've been brought high, and, and in all of these things, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have learned to be content. Apostle Paul, I love that. Like, he's an apostle, and he still had to learn it. And he seems to reference the fact that it's particularly in those low places where you learn contentment. And so if you are in one of those low places right now, if you're not being satisfied, if those things that you've looked to have not met your needs, fill in the blank for whatever that thing might be for you, don't see that as punishment from the Lord. See that as an opportunity, a God-given opportunity to draw close to him and to see that he really is enough for you. And remember the verse that comes right after that section in Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So as you are looking and beholding Christ, just ask him to enable you by his spirit to have the strength to find your contentment in him. All right, last but not least, what are the consequences of these two ways of life? We'll keep this really short. In other words, what is promised to these two groups of people? Verse nine, a real stark warning. It just says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. In other words, it says you're tempted uh, to pursue other things rather than God. It says that then you're trapped into a snare like an animal that gets caught. And then it leads to, plunges into all sorts of ruin and destruction. Ruin oftentimes is physical. Destruction in this, in this word is primarily spiritual. And Jesus, he warns us of this. He says, guys, you can't serve both God and money. You will either love the one and despise the other, or you will go after one and be devoted to one and leave the other. You can't have both. He says, guys, eventually you will wander away from the faith. And it says that they pierce themselves with many pangs. And says they're looking to all these idols to satisfy them. They're actually piercing themselves with many pangs and many sorrows when they don't come through. Haddon Robinson, he says, money has a way of binding us to what is physical and temporal and blinding us to what is spiritual and eternal. But what about for true followers? Read this verse again. Now there's great gain in godliness with contentment 
for he brought nothing into the world and we can not take anything out of the world. In other words, like you're coming in as a baby, you got nothing. You go out uh, later on, you got nothing. There's no pockets in a shroud. There's no U-Haul after a hearse. You're stuck. You can't bring anything with you. The Apostle Paul says, guys, set your gaze upon Christ and what he offers to you. He offers you pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Stop looking to these earthly things to satisfy you. Instead, find your true contentment, your true joy, your true peace in Christ alone. Lay down your altar at the feet of Jesus and pick up Christ and carry him with you everywhere you go. This is exactly what God does in the gospel for us. I mean, think about what he offers. He says, if you give up your life, you will gain everything. He holds out eternal hope and eternal love. He offers us forgiveness and grace and the removal of guilt and satisfaction and approval forevermore. He breaks down all those barriers and all those idols and he crashes them so that we would find ourselves more and more enraptured with him. He embraces us. He welcomes us. He satisfies us. He rejoices with us when we spend time with him. That's what he did at the cross. And then when he rose from the dead, he said, this, this life that I lived is now your life. I offer it to you freely forever and ever and ever and ever. And I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. So store up riches in heaven with me where your satisfaction never runs dry. As the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In other words, those things that you've been clinging to so tightly, as you begin to gaze upon him, he begins to loosen your grip on those things and on those people and all those relationships and on that status and that approval and all those things. And then he puts his tight grip of love on you and says, you are secure in me. Jill Briscoe says this, close with this. Years ago, I stopped looking to anyone but God to satisfy me. There is no man that can love me enough, no child that can need me enough, no job that can pay me enough, and no experience that can satisfy enough. Only Jesus. Let's pray.